Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed, Whistleblower's Life, and our producer, Marty Oakley. And I'd like to wish all of you a Happy New Year, belated, although um, it's taken me a little bit to get started here this year. This marks the beginning of our fifth year with Betrayed by Hospice. Hospice was created to provide care for those actively dying and to minimize the pain. But now almost anything will qualify you to enroll and you will be drugged into a coma until you die. Even though those that do not have any pain, they get the same drugs. The compassionate care that was once provided is nothing more than smoke and mirrors, lies and manipulations to get you to enroll. It is a huge money-making conglomerate, just like all businesses. And not all hospices have gone rogue, but most can, and I can't attest to any. So this week, you know, most of you who know me know I'm always researching. Um, In Vitus.com, it states that hospice is comfort care without curative intent, for the patient who is no longer responding to curative treatment or has elected not to further pursue such treatment. I call hogwash. This was never discussed with my mom and our family, and we never decided to stop her medications that she was being successfully treated. She was a victim in 2017, and last Saturday was her birthday. While she may not have made it to 93, she certainly would have lived longer if we hadn't let hospice in the door. So hospice comes in when your loved ones are being successfully treated for their illnesses, and soon they're dying, and hospice says it's just a dying process. Of course it is, because you stop their medication, you drug them, now they can't stay awake, they can't talk, eat, or drink, and they are dying. We stand by helpless to understand what is happening until it's too late. And then we live with the grief and the horror of not being able to save them because we didn't know then what we know now. And so that's why we share our late-found knowledge with other people trying to keep you from going through what our loved one did. And I want to talk about the definition for murder. It is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another one. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. But in today's society, changes definitions to suit their agenda, like what is a boy or what is a girl, and can a boy be a girl, and vice versa. And the answer to society today is, of course they can. Instead of me being a she or a her, I can be a they or a them, 
then that's perfectly acceptable. So it should come as no surprise that the definition of murder seems to be changing. If someone broke into your home and shot you trying to steal your property, we would call it murder, and they would be put on trial, hopefully be convicted and put in prison for the rest of their life or receive a death penalty. And if you're carjacked and somebody hits you over the head with a tire iron and you die, it's murder, and there are consequences for this behavior, and the person will pay for their crime. If a pregnant woman is killed, it's double homicide. If you give your spouse doses of rat poisoning over a period of time, slowly killing them, hopefully the medical examiner would do a toxicology report and determine it was murder and the spouse is going to go to jail. But if you were in hospice and you received chemical restraint in the form of morphine, ativan, and fentanyl, it's just a dying process and we're supposed to move on. They were old, they were sick, and it was their time to die. Well, I don't accept that explanation because I saw firsthand that my mother was murdered with a drug overdose and dehydration. If you gave a strong, young, healthy person the same drug combination, doses, and duration, that person would die. So how is it not murder? It is murder from the very definition, and no less crime has been committed than those I just talked about. But justice is not being served. Not only do they ignore it, but they condone it and they pay money to those committing the crime. I'm disgusted with what is going on. I wanted to ask tonight for our people that are listening, for them to call in and let me know what state you're representing. You can say your name or not, completely up to you. But I just want to see what states there are out there. And if you're on the Internet or you listen later, please comment and tell me what state or country you're listening from. If hospice makes money, why murder? People have asked me why hospice would kill someone when they are making money off of them. There is an aggregate cap each year per patient. That is $32,486. That means... If hospice had 10 patients in a year, of course the numbers are higher, but it's easier for me with shorter numbers, then that would be a pot of money for $324,869. Now, some patients require more assistance, durable medical equipment. Maybe they're in the home or in a facility, so it costs more to care for some and some less. Some live a shorter period of time and some longer. As long as the facility doesn't go over that amount in expenses, they are profiting. If all patients required a lot of assistance, equipment, and lived a long time, it cuts into their profit, so they're not going to let you live that long. Who better to share the ugly truth inside hospice than someone who has been on the inside and a whistleblower? Which brings me, (coughs) excuse me, to my guest this evening. Michelle Young-Dewers is the author of Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. She is a nationally credentialed, licensed, registered respiratory therapist and smoking cessation counselor with over 30 years of experience in the healthcare sector. She has served as an ethics board member for four major hospitals in Tampa, an adjunct 
professor at a local college and received Patient Excellence Award from the medical staff of a prestigious Tampa Bay area hospital. Michelle has cared for and worked with many high-profile celebrities and politicians, including being a staff member to a former vice president of the United States. In her book, Michelle exposes the truth about hospice mistakes made, promises not kept, the wrong people making medical decisions, and the unwillingness of staff to take an extra step to help ease someone's passing. Her book exposes that profit is the end game and not meeting the needs of the dying patient. She's been a guest on my program in the past and provided information on the process of enrollment, the quotas, the medical information regarding respiratory apparatus like BiPAP and CPAP and ventilators. Tonight I ask if she would come on and share some of the personal stories that are in her book. Of course, the names are changed to let you see that hastening death, or a.k.a. murder, is not the only issue with trusting hospice. And I'm honored to call Michelle my friend. Michelle, thank you for joining us this evening. I know your book has many stories, and I had a hard time picking out just a few of them. (coughs) Excuse me again, I've been ill. You were certainly no stranger to going around the system to care for patients. And I encourage the audience to get a copy of this book. We're just going to touch the the iceberg this evening. But there are a lot of things in there will shock you about how unsympathetic the staff were in all cases, and certainly not somebody I want taking care of my loved one. Michelle, I'd like for you to join in and greet the audience, and then I'd like to ask you questions about a couple of the patients in your book. Thank you, Marcia. That was a very nice introduction, and I appreciate you having me on your show again. I appreciate you coming on again. So do you want me to jump into the the stories that I want to talk about? Okay. Um, If anybody wants to call in and tell me your state, I know we had somebody earlier, um, you can... Do that, and when we catch a break, we will bring you in. First, I'd like, so I talked about why, because people will ask me about money. Well, why would they kill anybody? That's stupid, because they're making money off of the person, and I talked about the aggregate cap. So can you give us a true life story talking about what happened with Miss Minnie? Certainly. I, she's a prime example, Miss um, Minnie. When I met Miss Minnie, she had already been in hospice for about three or four years. And that's three or four years. For hospice, your terminal diagnosis, you should only be enrolled if you have six months or less. Now, that six months or less can be, you can be recertified for another six months. But for three or four years, that is quite excessive. When I first met Miss Minnie, she was still going out to lunch once a week with her friends. Um, she requested no visits on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Those were her time. Um, she loved vanilla ice cream. The nurse would visit her maybe once a week or every other two, every other week. 
She didn't require uh, any durable medical equipment at the time. Uh, she was very, um, she was, um, didn't need any, um, I'm sorry. Can you still hear me? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I was under the impression I was something happened. I'm sorry. So, yeah. um, so then she started needing oxygen, and um, over that next year, that fourth year, uh, came where she started to use oxygen. She required more medication. She needed an aid to help bathe her. Now the nurse was seeing her once a week. And she just required more services. So by her fifth year, and I, this is without exaggeration, by her fifth year of being in this hospice, um, she was now starting to cost them money. So all this time she was in hospice, those first three, four years, they were getting a daily rate, and I believe it was 160-something at the time. I, I say out of the financial aspect of it because I'm clinical, and um, the, uh, so during those first years, she wasn't, um, she was making money for the company. They didn't have to supply her with any equipment. They didn't have to supply her with any manpower. She was just icing on the tape. But then in the fourth year, now she's needing more resources, more equipment, medication, now she's starting to cut into their profits where now she's costing them money. She's costing them more money per day than what they're making on her. So they discharge her. And um, at, by the time I last saw her, she was leaving her front door open when people were coming over because she was too ill, too short of breath to be able to walk to the front door. Her medications were dropped off by the delivery service and left outside until someone could bring them into her. Um, she slept on her sofa. That was her bed. That was her daytime sitting area and her nighttime place to rest her head. And um, that's the, the cruelty of working in an industry that where they take the money, the money was more important than taking care of that patient. And it's, you know, and some could say, well, at that point, there's another hospice that picks her up. Well, yes, there is another hospice that picks her up. But for those five years, Miss Minnie was used to someone like myself coming by, you know, the aide, the nurse, the equipment tech, the drivers. She was used to all of them. So when she's not feeling good and she's towards Probably the last couple of weeks of her life, now we're going to go in, take all our equipment out, and a new company is going to come in and put strangers in your home with strange equipment. And all equipment is not the same as in the home. It may be an oxygen concentrator, but it may be a different brand that works a different way. There's To be that cruel to someone is just unconscionable. It's just... That's not how we should be doing things, and that's certainly not 
why I signed up to work for hospice to take care of patients at the end of life. Yes, I am, but I actually did lose connection, (laughs) so um, I didn't know if it was just me or everybody, but apparently it was just me, but I'm back in. So, yeah, that, but that stands, the reason that they could keep her there was because she wasn't really costing them a lot of money, right? So somebody went ever so often, she didn't have, you know, durable medical equipment, so she wasn't a high cost, is that right? Correct, and she was actually making them money. Is it, right. If we go back to that, you know, I, and I'm, I don't have an exact figure, uh, but if we go back to that, you know, 160-something per day, and you, you're not, you're, we're not giving you any medication, you don't have any oxygen, you don't need a, an aid every day, you don't need a nurse every two weeks, mm-hmm. That that's just free money headed your way. Right. It just adds up. And if you are in a facility, that amount of money a day increases. So if someone is staying in the hospice wing, the the death ward, then they're going to cost more money because they're, you know, they've got 24/7 and they've got the nurse there. So they really don't want that. You are costing a lot of money. So um, let's talk about uh, penny, penny, copper, penny. And that's um, deadly mistakes that can be made if somebody's not paying attention. So can you talk about that one? This um, lady lived in uh, alone and she smoked. And um, she used to buy tap majority of the time. And uh, oxygen, she still used oxygen while she smoked. And she was supposed to be discharged from the hospital and sent to a hospice house so she could safely smoke. They could monitor her a little better. However, she was mistakenly sent home. And when I um, arrived at her, her home, she had her nasal cannula off in her lap, and she was actively smoking a cigarette in her home. With her oxygen tank right there. Right. Well, the oxygen running into, into her, her clothing. And oxygen is not a combustible, but it, it fuels um, a fire which would easily ignite anything that's around it. And uh, she was also sent home with um, morphine. So we're going to drug up this lady and we're going to allow her to smoke in her home with uh, oxygen. The problem is they knew they made a mistake. Because when I called the office, immediately finding it, I called the office and said, why is this lady... Why are we giving this lady morphine when we know she's smoking at home? Well, she was sent there by mistake. It's like, okay, well, someone correct. No one bothered to even even correct the mistake. As in, you know, go ask her if she wants to go to the hospice house. She couldn't even care for herself. And you're wearing a BiPAP, you're hooked to a machine. 
uh, she would take the BiPAP machine off just long enough to smoke, and if she needed to, to uh, hobble to the back, the little commode that was right there, um, there was a neighbor that would uh, check on her, and um, that was just, um, I, I, I can't go into all that, you know, that's listed in the book just because it, that was a, that's a little bit of a long story. But the takeaway from that is is that the hospice was more concerned that because when I spoke to the office, the the main objective of them, what their objective was, well, we had her sign a smoking waiver, mm-hmm. which of course does nothing for the patient; it just protects them from liability. They were quite happy to have her in her home smoking high on morphine with oxygen. Um, But they had to have known just the fact that they had her sign um, a smoking waiver. I mean, else why would they? Right, so they had to have known. Yeah, they knew. But when you call them to identify that, hey, there's a problem here, you know, she could blow up herself and, you know, a couple of her neighbors, then oh, well, we just made a mistake. Not just we made a mistake. That is a deadly mistake, and they didn't care. It, you know, no big deal. But when you got there, you left out part of the story, Michelle, and I read the story. But when you got there, um, she she was smoking, and you want to tell that? You want me to? What? Because she's got a cigarette well, in her hand. I, 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 Go ahead. Like I said, that's a long story, but go ahead. Oh, I can make it short. But she's got ashes in her hand, and Michelle comes in the door and, you know, is kind of shocked by this going on. And, you know, she's like, you you, you can't be smoking with, you know, with the oxygen right there. That's dangerous. And the lady starts to just, you know, drop it, and she says, well, we put it in the ashtray. She didn't even have an ashtray there. So Michelle brings a cup of, you know, partial water. But she didn't even have an ashtray, so I don't know where she had been flipping her ashes in the first place. And like Michelle said, she had morphine in her system. So she's not going to really be totally coherent in what she's doing. Plus you've sent her home, and I'm assuming that she's got morphine with her to give, to diagnose or give herself, you know, her next dosage which could be fatal, too, because she wasn't really totally with it at that point. Is that correct? Oh, she was well-medicated. I mean, she was well self-medicated. She had a liquid, uh, she had a rock canal bottle at her bedside table, and there were six small syringes that were empty on her bedside table. She had free reign to that morphine bottle. I mean, she could have just opened it and drank the whole bottle. Right. But... Yeah, no, she was she was well drugged up the day that I saw her. That um, yeah, that was so a horrible. Did they send a transport? They did. Did they send a, they, they sent a transport unit? And how much longer did she live after that? She, uh, about three weeks. Mm-hmm. So her it could have been over that day. You know, she'd taken too much. Could have been over that day, and the worst part would have been she um, 
I mean, I, I'm burning up in a, in a building where I just, no, no. Right. No, no, exactly. No. Right. And that's, you know, it's a deadly mistake. But they didn't, it didn't seem to, and this is the problem, and throughout Michelle's book, when, you know, the, reading the stories, you can see that there is no compassion for the patient. It's just another patient. They're going to die anyway. And throughout the book, all of her stories, and there there are a lot. I had to whittle down to just a few of them. But throughout the book, you can read. They don't care. And this is, you know, this is a big hospice. Mm-hmm. But they didn't care about the patient. And it, it's it's just disgusting to me. So... Um, and it's not and only the hospice I, sorry, and it wasn't only the hospice I worked for. The hospice I worked for covered seven counties. There were other hospices within those counties. And, you know, uh, there may be one, more than one hospice company um, within a county. And hospices are like um, hospitals. They're... They're run similar to, you know, a hospital here and a hospital there. They're different, and they may be run by different people, but they work in similar fashion. Well, that's the same way hospice is. Hospice isn't just one organization throughout the country. It's a bunch of little, you know, could have been an individual, one, you know, they only want it, they have one in one county and that's it, or they cover multiple counties or they cover multiple states. So it depends on how big that particular hospital, the hospice organization is. Does that, does that make sense? Right, right. And you don't have to be a medical professional to be the CEO of the hospice. I mean, you can, you know, I could decide I want to open a hospice, and if I have enough money to open one, I don't have to have any criteria to go and open a hospice and say, you know, well, I'm going to start having patients come in here and get doctors to verify, certify that they are hospice eligible by the sixth month. And like I said earlier, the criteria is so watered down now. And I could open up one. In fact, I should do a program on that, that there was um, this one that they found, I think it was in um, Eva Kaufman's, documentation that she was writing about that there was a like eight or ten hospices in this one building which there wasn't and and there really wasn't anything set up there as far as beds and whatnot and there was a guy that just answered the phone for all of these multiple hospices they were just raking the money in and that's what it is a lot of it's just become a money-making scheme with our loved mm-hmm. ones being mm-hmm. The cattle. Yeah. And your problem. That was a very good article by Ava. I I hope that's listed somewhere that people can um, uh, find that that article by Ava. Um, We've got people lining up to to talk. Did you want to take some calls? All right, we're going to take area code 906 first. Hold on here. Let's get you up live. There you go. Hi. Area code 906. Hi. Go ahead, Hi, Marcia. this is this is April Donovan from Hi, Michigan. April. <laughs> Michigan. 
Yes. Gotcha. Um, okay. Did you want to ask Michelle anything while you're on? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, so two doctors have to sign off in order to get a patient enrolled, correct? I'm sorry, say that again. I, I didn't quite hear the first part of that. I said two doctors need to sign off um, on a hospice, hospice document in order to get them signed enrolled, I guess the patient enrolled. Yes, it, it, yes, that is, that is correct. Okay. Um, I was just wondering that because of all the documents that I received, I did not see that in my mom's documents. And um, the hospice doctor was actually her primary doctor. Is that a conflict of interest? Um, her primary care was also her hospice doctor. Yes. So he worked for the hospice organization? Yes. And he had like a, a private, uh, private practice? Um, I mean, she's affiliated with the hospital. I think she was employed by the hospital that had the hospice company. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is now private practice. The way most of them um, operate, and I can't speak for every situation, but it's usually going to be the hospice that's receiving the patient, they have a medical director, and that medical director will sign off after reviewing the patient's chart to say that this patient is eligible for hospice care. And then on the other side of that, it's going to be the primary care or the hospitalist if they happen to be in the if they're coming out of the hospital to the hospice that the the intensivist or the hospitalist in the hospital will also sign off saying that this patient is eligible for a hospice. Um, in that situation, you know, I'm not an expert in that, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna not lay judgment on that. Um, you know, you would want more than I would think. You would want more than one person, one medical doctor, to say that you're eligible, especially if it, it, that does seem like a conflict, conflict of interest that you're feeding into your own system. You follow me? There's no yes. check and balances, at least when there's the hospice doctor, yes, they're self-serving. They're going to say, yes, that patient is, can come into hospice. But then you would hope on the other side of that is the patient's primary care physician or the hospitalist that's kind of the check and balance to say, oh, we're not sure that this patient is hospice really, you know, qualified, or they are. Um, The problem, and I'm going to get on a little sidetrack here, sorry, but when a patient becomes a a frequent flyer, so to speak, in the hospital, when they've been to the hospital too many times, it's a bad mark on the hospital. The hospital will get dinged for that. When when one, one patient keeps coming back, they're not being managed properly either by their primary care physician or the hospital. So if the primary care physician and or the hospital cannot manage that patient 
symptoms appropriately to where they're not having these frequently, you know, coming into the ER time after time after time, then that's a bad mark on them by these regulatory agencies and insurance companies. So the hospital at that point will look towards other ways, either, you know, get this patient transferred to a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home or have them diverted to another hospital or let's enroll them in hospice. Then we don't have to deal with that patient anymore. Um, it, so it, it, it can be self-serving. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers your question. But um, but in what it is supposed to be, what they say in all the documentation is that one doctor, so that if it's your primary care or if it's a hospitalist, that one doctor will certify that the individual is hospice eligible and another doctor follows up with that and agrees with that. And in April, what you're saying, in your case, there was just one, so they did not follow proper protocol, in my humble opinion, and my situation with my mom was the same because her private doctor that she went to go see in the office also happened to be the medical director of the hospice facility that they talked us into taking her into. And I did not know at that time that there should be two certifications So in my mom's situation, it was just like your mom's situation. It was one doctor who certified that she was hospice eligible, and it was he was the medical director. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to me it seems like it's cut corners. And it should be a red flag. Right. Yeah, it it just seems like a conflict of interest, I guess. Um, I was also wondering, do they get bonuses for enrolling people? The admission, that is one of the things that just, the admission nurses get bonuses or perks or bonuses other than money and money for how many uh, enrollees they can do a day. Uh, They're expected to, if they work an eight-hour shift, to get two patients enrolled. If they work 12 hours, they're supposed to get three patients enrolled. So there's that quota that we've spoken about before that uh, they're held to. So that alone is a conflict of interest. When you have a nurse that uh, they... Say you, you have your mom in ho- in a hospital and someone mentions hospice and you just want information. So now you have this admission nurse come by to give you education on hospice. Would you be would you take the information she's giving you with say a grain of salt if you knew she was looking to get two patients signed up today or three patients signed up today, and if she met all her numbers this week, she would get a bonus at the end of the week. I mean, it does put a different spin how you see these patients, these people, when you know what, <laughs> at you know what their motive is. Mm-hmm. Exactly, me? it's like a used car salesman. They don't get paid unless they get. <laughs> you know, sell the car, 
and the nurse maybe gets her salary, but she's going to get that bonus. And, you know, Bradley mm-hmm. Harris, I mean, he was paying off doctors for every certification that they gave him, and the people were not hospice eligible. So, yes, in a perfect world, April, it wouldn't happen like that. But as Michelle is saying, they it's in their best interest for them to sign you up. So I would not trust that they are not signing me up when I really don't need. I mean, it it's watered down, the criteria. Mm-hmm. We've got and, to the you point know. of also who's, who are they putting in as the gatekeepers? I mean, the medical director, after I left, I heard, allegedly, I'm going to say allegedly, because I, I was not there, um, but it was well known that he was a um, medical director, and it was well known that he w- was drank too much, and he would come into the office first thing in the morning drunk. And then finally they had had enough of it and, and let him go. Well, how, why would you even put up with that? It, it, mm-hmm. it would only need to happen one time, and that should have been the end of it. But the, the reason sure. they kept him, but the reason they kept him was every name that came across was an automatic sign-on, 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 certified, 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 certified. So, you know, turn a blind eye to what was going on and keep those patients rolling in. It's sad. Well, and it's like, you know, with your mom, April, um, she was being successfully treated. There was no reason to put her, to take her off of her medicine and to put her into hospice. Hospice was supposed to be for those who cannot be treated. And just like Vitus.com that I was reading this week, and it says that the patient has decided not to get any more preventive treatment or the treatment's not working. And that was not the case of your mother. That was not the case of my mother. I venture Mm -hmm. to say the majority of the people that I have talked to, that is not their case. Their their loved one was being successfully treated. And, look, even if you have cancer and you're at end-stage cancer and you can't treat it anymore, that doesn't mean that they have any right to start drugging you into a coma, (laughs) and that is what they're doing. There right. is, if you're in pain, you minimize the pain. You don't drug people into a coma, but they put them in chemical restraint. And I've seen videos of your precious mom when she was lucid, and then all of a sudden she isn't. And she feared what they were doing to her. She knew something was up. But And mm-hmm. you tried, I mean, you were a warrior. You still are. Um, trying to get your mom out of that situation and trying to seek justice for her. So, I mean, I commend you mm-hmm. for that because you've you've stood up to them not even knowing, but you were suspecting, you were suspicious of what was happening. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. And, and, April, and, April, I've heard your story, and I know you did everything you could for your mom, but this, the system was so stacked against you because of the lack of knowledge. And that's not your fault. It's the um, illusion of help that hospice puts out there to patients and families, um, mm-hmm. and then they don't 
follow through with it. And they will tell you whatever you need to hear to get you to enroll or to get, you know, someone, your loved one enrolled. So, um, you know, you did everything you could for your mom. Okay, okay, we've got thank two you. more callers thank you, here. April. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go with uh, area code 616 right now. You're live and on the air. Hi. This is Holly from Michigan also. Um, yes. Michelle, I'm also a respiratory therapist, been in the business for a long time. Um, I just want to um, talk about your oxygen. Um, it still seems to be uneducated. Uh, way back in the day, we would walk into patients' rooms where they would have oxygen on, smoking a cigarette, and hairspray, which those three combined melt the cannula on their face. And right, we thought, right. get away from that. I don't know if you remember that stuff, but there still is a pure extreme amount of uneducated people uh, like you said, the hospice owners don't even need to be doctors, and they don't seem to even... I don't know. They just, they don't even know. Um, And then my second question is, how do you, how are you defining the difference between palliative care and hospice? Because the two seem to be getting very combined, especially in hospitals, Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. seem to think one is the same as the other, and it is not. And then my third question to you, just to ask, is also the new um, the new protocol. Well, it's not real new, but you know, it used to be patient was DNR or brain not not DNR, brain dead, and they went through the protocol to prove that they were brain dead for organ donations. But now, what they're doing is, if someone is chronically ill, and so now they're just turning everything off and, you know, give them three or four days or something, let them die in the hospital for organ donations. And basically they take them down to the OR, and if they die within 30 minutes, they'll take the organs. If they don't, they have to bring them back up to the room, which they're taking disabled people like that or just people who are on a vent. Anyways, I, I, I'm sure people can figure out all the red flags about that, but I just wanted to hear what you think about that. Um, the organ donation system. The organ donation system is another. <laughs> it is very scary because, as you know. And maybe, and this is probably going to be new to a lot of listeners. The person is still alive when they take their organs. You cannot take organs from a dead person. And now I'm talking about the heart, the, the the more expensive organs that they like to uh, you know, sell. Well, that has become big too, business. They're not even proving brain death anymore. They're not even going through those protocols. They did at the beginning. They were very stringent, but they don't do that anymore. Oh, and you know, there's been studies that have uh, recently come to light. I'm going to say, when I say recent, I'm, you know, in the last five, eight, ten years, that show even though they say patients are brain dead by an EEG, there's still 
something there. When you have a heartbeat still going and the ventilator, the patient may be on a ventilator, they're now starting to question, is that patient truly dead or are they just kind of in like not true locked-in syndrome like we know it, but in a state such as that? Um, and I've always but, believed that the hearing is the last thing to go. So even when my patients pass, I still kind of just sit there and talk to them, let me hold their hand, let them know that someone's with them. Um, I'm sorry, what was your second question? Um, palliative care and hospice care oh. seems to be mixed up with each other. And you are, you are absolutely correct. They use those uh, interchangeably, and they're not. Palliative care is made for patients that are, say they have a tumor and they just need a little uh, radiation to shrink that tumor. They're in too much pain, so they'll pain, give them pain management. It's not a cure, and it's not a true treatment therapy, but it's um, supposed to minimize uh, pain mostly pain, to give a better quality of life. Hospice is supposed to be for truly end-of-life care, which is completely different from palliative care. But you're right. They are getting used so together. How does the they're, they're dementia, so how did the dementia patient, which is not really Alzheimer, dementia doesn't really have an end life because it's just a mental decline and patients can live for the next forever. So how did they get thrown into hospice care all of a sudden? It seems to be a lot of them are thrown into hospice care when they're not really diagnosed with Alzheimer. They're just old. I am so glad you brought that up. <laughs> People are going to think we, we fixed this call. We did not. I've never spoken to this lady before. But I am so glad you brought this up. They have started to use, uh, and it's actually now a diagnosis. It's called failure to thrive. Oh, gee. And if you, if you remember back from, I'm thinking, like 40, 50 years ago, failure to thrive was originally spoken about for infants. You know, yeah, brought into the exactly. world, failure to thrive. So we're all in, if you're in my age group, if you're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, you're used to, that's quite an age group, but you're used to the failure to thrive um, verbiage from a child. Now they put it to the other end of the spectrum and it's adults with failure to thrive. And I'll tell you what, that is being used more and more and more that is like the go-to. If they don't have anything else to pin on a patient, that's what they're going to use. Failure to thrive. Yep. And you know what the definition is. That just might mean you're not out working 60 hours a week. I mean, you know, that, that is definition of failure to thrive. And we're not talking about babies or anything, but failure to thrive for adult is all over the map now. Anything from drinking too much to not paying a bill on time. Hey, I've been guilty about that several times to just, I don't know. It seems to be all over the place as far as what okay. the definition is. 
part of that is the ability to take care of themselves. And the Vitus.com has so much information on there that will tell you what qualifies an individual for that. Michelle mentioned earlier about the frequent flyer if you go to the hospital for broken bones, for COPD, congestive heart failure. If you're going to the emergency room three times in a year, you qualify and you have a disease like congestive heart failure or COPD, you're going to qualify for hospice. If you cannot do adult daily living activities such as dress yourself, feed yourself, make food for yourself, do the hobbies you used to do, run a vacuum cleaner, um, you're incontinent occasionally, which UTI could cause that, then that person is, which is dementia, a lot of people have, the, my dad had dementia and there were a lot of things he could not do for himself, but he was not hospice. <laughs> he had no reason to ever go to hospice and he didn't, but he qualified for hospice. So the problem is, is it has become so watered down that almost anybody will qualify for hospice. Hospice, yeah. Which and is- the difference between the palliative and the hospice is, as Michelle said, it's going to be a curative treatment. They will still give you your medication. Once you go into hospice, they are not there to cure you. They are not there to treat anything. And if you wind up thinking that your loved one has a UTI, they will tell you they're not going to test for it because they're not there to cure it. We're just here to give you comfort care. The problem is is that palliative leads directly into hospice, and there is a chart out there, again, under Vitus, that has the information from how how long you would live if you were under palliative versus under hospice care. Well, my issue is you would live a hell of a lot longer if you don't go under palliative or hospice because they cannot be trusted. They lie. It's manipulations and lies. And if people do not educate themselves and listen to other people and do the research, you will wind up in a situation as April, who just called in myself and thousands of other people that lose their loved one because you don't know the game they're playing. And it's all about making money off of our loved one's life. On the brain dead, there is a test called an apnea test, which is not to be confused with sleep apnea, that they shut the brain off for 10 minutes and they can convince the loved one, see, there's no brain activity. The brain takes a long time to heal. You cannot put somebody in there and say, oh, well, they're in a coma, they're unconscious, and, you know, they're gone. I had a lady on that was in a coma for about a month, and the doctor came in and wanted to take her body parts, and she remembers hearing, as Michelle said, the hearing's last to go, remembers hearing him say, He was angry with her husband because she's a 26-year-old lady. She's got lots of body parts, and he won't let her go. The doctor was acting like there's no way she would come out of it. She came out of it, became a nurse, and she remembers hearing him say that. It takes a long time for the brain to heal. That's what I was talking about, though, the difference between um, brain dead and then the new protocol they have going, which is supposedly <clears throat> chronically ill. What before brain death protocol used to be where you had to do three different things. One was the apnea <clears throat> test, and we did six minutes. 
And the other one was um, uh, shooting cold water into the ears because it causes dilation. And then the third one usually was we go down and do a scan on their brain to see if there's any blood flow. That was the three most common ones I've heard of, and that's what we did at our hospitals anyways, to prove brain death um, that way. But then there's the other one I think you're talking about where they're calling people, they're not doing the stringent tests anymore, or they're calling someone chronically ill or hopeless or they don't think they're going to come out of it because of this and this and that or whatever the reasons they have, which is the other part where people sometimes do wake up and they'll basically just turn everything off, take them down the OR, and then basically it used to be they would wait 30 minutes right next to the OR table in the OR. And then if their heart rate or their heart stopped, any time in that 30 minutes, then they start chopping real fast. Um, and then if they didn't go in that time limit, then they would bring him back upstairs. But they kind of helped him to their heart stopping because when people are that sick, they need supplemental everything because that's why they're in the hospital in the first place. Yeah, so I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look. I have not heard that there's been any change. I'll have to look into that. But but thank Marcia, you for bringing can I this say something that. here. Yes, ma'am. Um, we did we did those shows, Marcia Southwick and I, and it was about the selling scavenging of body parts, and it is a trade that is totally totally unregulated. Um, anybody can do it. The only time you might get in trouble is is how you ship it, if you're shipping it somewhere. But there is no regulation on this, and hospice in our research and investigation turned out to be the biggest supplier of organs and body parts. And when I say body parts, we're talking about whole sections of the physical body, the brain, um, the whole arms and shoulders, legs, the whole torso, or a whole cadaver. Um, but this is there's big, big money in this. Um, now, is that for research, just, or is that for, because typically if you're in hospice, you're going to be given so much morphine and Ativan and fentanyl that, mm-hmm. you know, be kind of rough to take your body. And, and and typically people have issues, you know, like congestive heart failure or something. You wouldn't want mm-hmm. that. But are they doing this for research purposes, Marty? Yes. Uh, they're sold okay. for research. They're sold for all kinds of things. But the point is the family seldom knows this has happened. And it's monetized. <laughs> Yes. It's monetized. Yes. Yeah. And well, they unless you're being, your loved happened. one's being cremated, right? Yes. I mean, I would know if yes. I, they happened to my mom because, you know, she had an open casket burial. Right. But, see, they usually, when, when this happens, they're rushing these people to cre- what's left, to mm-hmm. cremation. They're destroying the evidence. And Especially the family never COVID. knows that they... Yeah. I think the during family COVID, never you don't even have a happened. choice. No. Yeah. No. And, uh, there's a difference between the organ trade being as what, you know, Michelle was saying, that, that you can't use organs from someone who is uh, really sick because their organs don't work or someone who's already right. dead. But there's a big organ trade from, and this used to be science fiction. Now there's an organ trade from orphans and from people who are giving up a kidney just for money or from the prisons. 
Um, right. That's where the money is as far as live organ trade is going. Right. Um, but that's the difference. It should, it should, everything yeah. is monetized. So if it's monetized and there's no checks and balances and there's not really strict regulations on it, then things just go to hell. That's just kind of what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, they, they basically have made commodities out of all of us. Um, yeah. We're that's just right. a commodity we whole or part. Yeah. We're the biggest we're asset they have to sell. Yes. Yeah, Canada yes. just okay. recently came out with um, an article that said Canada is one of the leading organ um, harvesting for people, and you're shipping them around. You were talking about shipping them, Marty. That yeah. Canada, because Canada is now ramping up as of March. They will allow people who are um, challenged, mentally challenged, to be eliminated and i don't think yes. they're asking they're just kind of directing that they're starting to euthanize people and they are becoming one of the world's largest organ transporters because of all the well, people that, in canada that are being euthanized well that's like well that's um, where that wyoming and, from. yeah wyoming and yeah. i believe it's maryland or connecticut <laughs> it's one of those two states that passed laws that it's okay to starve to death Anybody who has mental illness, whether that's dementia, you know, Alzheimer's, whether they're just mentally ill, um, they can starve them to death now. And then once they do that, again, they can sell whatever they can sell. You don't have anything to say about it. We've got one more caller here, Marcia. All right. A couple of hung up, so let's get this caller on, too. Hang on, girls. <laughs> okay, area code 540. You're live and on the air. Hello, Marsha. This is Patricia Carter. Hi, um, Patricia. Virginia. And I really don't have a question, but I do have a statement. Um, how individuals who are abusers or want monetary gain can take use hospice or comfort care and pain management uh, to commit the murder legally in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Well, I, think, I just wanted to add that, huh? Yeah, I mean, murder is happening at, you know, within hospices. I think right. in every state, I don't even think you need medical aid in dying or, you know, or assisted suicide because we have hospice. I don't, I don't even think yeah, you need just, another organization to do it. Hospice is doing it. And, and right. they're starting in the hospital um, you know, as Liz Eisner could attest to, I mean, her husband was in the hospital and they started there. Terry Worgan's husband was in the hospital and they started giving and them my drugs. Father was in, my yeah, father so, was in the hospital. Right. So they don't even have to get to hospital before they start murdering them. Right. But I'm just saying that my father's PO, power of attorney, um, orchestrated it all, and that all the tools are there for them to do it. The, the true, and that's that's the other part. Um, in April, I don't know if April's still on, but that's the other part. Is if you have, you know, hospice that's doing this, but if you have a family member who, or a right. power of attorney who doesn't care or is in line to 
um, wind up getting money from that person, then they're going to be pushing that too. Hospice will go directly to them, even if you have medical power of attorney. Hospice wants to talk to someone who will go along with them and let's move this person in and out and get on to the next patient. As in, like in the state of Virginia, you have 14 days to stop them. My father was dead on day 14. They upped the medicines uh, on him every two hours in the last 24 hours, every four hours in the last 24 hours. Right, because and they were on a mission. He, had, he, he, was, he was 74, very healthy, but he was suffering <clears throat> from UTIs that wreaked havoc on his body and caused dementia-type symptoms, which he aspirated, and then got pneumonia. And he passed that point, had a very good doctor in ICU, was recovering. Then the paperwork was signed with instructions not to, t- not to inform anyone of his six children. And they all complied. Mm-hmm. And- And then I'll end it with this. His death record reads, uh, he died of complications due to Alzheimer's. He had no, no autopsy. And the person who signed it is the head of all of the palliative and hospice care in all of southwestern Virginia. And he didn't even, as far as we understand, look at my father's body at all. He called the, the hospitalist at the hospital he was in. Well, I, I venture to and say majority of the death certificates are fictitious. Yeah. Right. And I would I'm say sorry, that doesn't even sound like an accurate, uh, that doesn't even seem, seem uh, like an accurate or uh, a credible um, certification, right? I mean that. Yes, that's yeah, yeah. I so. thought when you first said um, when when this caller, I'm sorry, I, I missed your name, Pat Patricia. Patricia, oh, yeah, Patricia. I thought uh, you were talking about family members. Um, like there was a lady I went to see, Miss Taylor, who her son. Um, I believe her sons killed her. I saw her one evening, and the next morning she was dead. And when I look back um, on the conversations with the sons and how much morphine did she have and the whole realm of how Miss Taylor looked at me and asked me about when I would come back, that still haunts me. Um, just looking back, and when I spoke to the nurse the next morning, and I said to her, I think the sons killed her, she says, yes, it happens all the time. And, you know, I I struggled with that, and I even spoke with that nurse later on about maybe writing a report to the authorities, and I put all this in my chart notes for this patient. So, you know, the authorities are going to say, well, she's in hospice, of course she's going to die. You know, that's, that's how they look at things. Um, well, we, we tried to I fight know. back. We tried to fight back, and 
we faced a death panel of 14. And we were scheduled to see a judge 10 minutes before he died. I even had been that, uh, the evening before that at the magistrate's office begging them to go get my father, to help me get my father. Because we finally got him transferred out of the hospital to home under the agreement that the kids were going to pay for all of his care. But we were lied to by our mother and and hospice. And he came home on hospice care. The nurses did not administrate, administer any of the drugs my mother did. Yeah, well, and that's a situation of where when someone... Uh, is ready to get rid of somebody, they have a perfect way to do it, yep. and it's legal. Yep. You don't even have to give somebody rat yep. poison or whatever. So, But, yep. but thank it's you, Patricia. Yeah, it's legal for calling in. Um, Michelle, I wanted to get to um, Holiday because I think that's a story that's important. Um, I think it's got a lot of good things in it that people need to be aware of. So can you talk about Holiday, Ms. Hobbs? Miss Hobbs, um, she was a lady I visited over a, a, another a year's time or so, and she made it quite clear that she was fighting every inch of the way. She didn't want hospice, but she was on hospice because she needed some of the medications that they were supplying. And um, so she made it quite clear that she was not going to sign a DNR. And... Uh, she got to the point where at one time she developed a little bit of a pneumonia and um, her son called the after hours um, call center about getting some antibiotics and, um, and he wanted to take her to the emergency room. The call center uh, said they could give her antibiotics and fluids at the hospice house. So they arranged for um, transport to the hospice house. When they ar- arrived at the hospice house, the, um, of course they're not going to give them antibiotics at the hospice house, there's, and there's no doctor there at the time to uh, write these orders. And, uh, and the pharmacy's closed. You're not getting any medications that they don't already have on hand. And antibiotics would not be one of them. Uh, so the call center lied to the family to get them to go to the hospice house rather than to the hospital. Uh, when the son uh, realized they weren't going to get the antibiotics for his mom, he insisted on them calling for hospice. I mean, for the ambulance to take them to the hospital. Over the next couple of hours, now we're talking, you know, three, four in the morning, um, she's tired, she's wore out. Uh, She ends up dying uh, from the stress of all this at the hospice house and the medications that the hospice house gave her. And it was the next morning when I arrived at the hospice house that, and I happened to be sitting in the nurse's station charting on another patient, that the doctor came in and signed the DNR form for that patient. That patient didn't want a DNR form. 
but that gets them out of the loop of having a death without a DNR and that nothing mm-hmm. was done to prevent that death. They didn't perform CPR. They didn't do transport. None of that. Um, it happened. You have to be on your toes all the time anymore mm-hmm. when you're dealing with this type of environment. And they will say that they ask you if you want to sign the DNR, and a nurse will, you know, in any other form, you know, if you agree to this, and the nurse just signs off and says, well, they agreed to it. So it's not even in her signature. She wanted to live, and a doctor signs after the fact that she didn't. And it's like, who does that? Hospice. It just, you know, DeMarty, do we have another call? No, not right now. Okay. Um, If anybody wants to call in, you can call in. We've got, you know, another 20 minutes to go. But um, so one of the other ones that I thought was very heartbreaking is um, Bobby, who had, the young man who had lung cancer, and he was, his mom was staying with him. Yeah. Um, Oh. This young man, uh, I was called um, to go assess this gentleman because the mom was calling saying that he wasn't doing well. When I arrived at the home, um, I was greeted with a a young man in the bed, and he had end-stage agitation. I could tell he was dying. He was on his way out. Um, I called the physician, told him what was happening. He sent over a nurse. I spoke with the, the, the mom and told her what was happening and that if, uh, if he had some morphine ordered to give him what was ordered. Um, and she said, if he's going to die, I don't want to be here. I want to be left here alone with him. And I, I told her, assured her a nurse was on the way and that she would stay with him. Um, the nurse arrived. I brought her up to speed on what was happening. And I emphatically told the nurse, Mom doesn't want to be, he will be dead in the next couple of hours. She doesn't want to be here alone with him. You need to stay. And she she was a continuous care nurse that she would stay through the night if need be um, to to this end. Um, so seeing that everything was, I thought, under control, I left to attend to other patients. And um, the next morning I reviewed his chart to see how things transpired. And he did die a couple of hours after I left. But the sad thing is the nurse that said she would stay with that parent, you know, the mom, uh, left shortly after I left to go home. And she was not replaced by someone else. Um, So that mom was alone with her child when he died, and no one was there to support that mom. 
So not only was the family lied to, you know, I was lied to as a, I mean, if the nurse could have just told me I can't do this, right? I would have stayed. Right. Because I knew it was pretty imminent that or Or if she was going to leave, then, you know, because you, you had somebody else to go have see, someone you, in could, place. you know, you would have come yeah. back. Or send somebody yes. else. But when you yes. say to a mother whose son is dying, "I will stay here with you," you better be you better be staying. And that's right. and that's what I don't get, Michelle. Throughout, you know, I knew, mm. you know, six years ago that they were killing people when they killed my mom, but I didn't know until I read your book about the other atrocities that they do. That they make promises they don't keep it. And, I mean, this is not, you know, the stories that we've talked about, that's not, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there are so many in here that other things happen to people, you know, with, with you know, the respiration, with you, you know, taking, um, what did you tell me it's called, D-something? Um, I, I, don't, I don't recall what you were saying. When you take the, the respirator off. Thank you. That's it. That's the word. Yeah. But, you know, but having people that, you know, that they that aren't even trained to do it and, you know, doctors like thinking, well, I'll just do it if there's nobody here to do it. That's that's a precise thing to do. You can't just go in there and rip something off of somebody without causing them a great deal. You have to. That's why you have the degree you have to be a respiratory therapist. Right. It gets messy. <laughs> it can get messy. Mm-hmm. But they would do mm-hmm. that. I mean, they would just say, well, you know, we'll just get so-and-so to do it. You have to be trained to do that, and that's what's in the best interest of the patient. You have to look at these people as people and not as, well, they're going to die. It doesn't matter. It matters more now than it ever mattered this is mm-hmm. the last mm-hmm. of their life. This is when you need to be the most tender, when they are the most fragile, and that is when you should be taking care of them. But, mm-hmm. Michelle, your book shows such atrocities. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many stories. I tried to get Michelle to, you know, go over all of them, but that would be like a, you know, a whole day. We would have to sit here and read the book to you. So that's why I'm saying go get this book because so, there's so much much more in there. So the, I have another question then. So is it becoming illegal to die at home now? I mean, do you have to no. go to a hospital? Because it seems like people are scared of letting their loved one die in the home because of legal issues. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. into this because of my mother who died, but it, it's because of my daughter that my mother died quite a long time ago, um, and she died at home. She ended up having a brain tumor, but she just slipped away. We didn't give her more drugs. We, you know, just did what we did. I mean, she wanted a glass of water, we gave her a glass of water. If she wanted soup, we gave her soup. If we wanted this, made her comfortable. But right, she you just took care of her. And that, she just that's what people away. are supposed to do. If if you can, 
that's what you're supposed to do is to keep your loved one at home, take care of them. Everybody can't. I get that. Um, my dad lived with us for five years after my mom was murdered, and we were never going to have hospice involved with him. But he died here at our home, and our doctor knew it. I called the doctor, you know, like less than a week before. I knew that time was close, and the doctor said, do we need to call hospice? My dad heard that word and started screaming, no hospice, no hospice. Yeah, why if your dad was already dying, why would someone need to call? Well, you hospice? don't. But 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 look at look at um, Bobby's mom, and she was afraid to be there alone with him. And and everybody doesn't have that support system. And we've been taught through the years that you need hospice to take care of you because they're compassionate. They're not, and. You don't have to have them. My dad died here. Now, I will say that when we called the police, um, the police got here. He did not have a DNR. He had a medical I was his medical power of attorney. He did not have a DNR, but I showed them my documentation, and I said, you know, don't bring him back. I, you know, he was almost 94, and it, it was, his life was over. And they had the police were here, and until they talked to his medical doctor, and his medical doctor said, "Yes, I'm aware. This is what happened. It, you know, there's no foul play." So if someone well, yeah, is they're going to obligated to do CPR and all that kind of stuff sometimes, but I'm just kind of wondering what the playbook is now. Do you have to have that stuff at home? Like a DNR letter pasted, because it used to be you would have to have a letter, a DNR pasted on your door. So but, when that person died and whoever comes in your house sees that letter and knows not to start resuscitation. Well, so and, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, my dad died last year, October of 21, and it, I, I had just, I had a medical power of attorney. I had no DNR. I said, no. I mean, you could look at my dad and tell, you know, his life was over and there was nothing they could do. They listened to me, but we had to have his medical doctor say that he was aware. I had called him. He knew what was going on. We had Zoom called. He knew the situation. So, yes, a person can die at home, but you need to have a medical doctor, and your medical doctor needs to be aware of the situation so you don't wind up in a case where somebody thinks you did something to somebody. That, exactly. You know, so, I yes, you can have someone can die at home. I'm I mean, sorry. I don't – well, hospice just has just become a cost thing. I mean, if someone's going to die, they're going to die. I don't understand why someone has to have hospice. I mean, I get well, to a point, it, it, but it's, it shouldn't be a, oh, you're going to die, you have to go to hospice. <laughs> I mean, no, no, but, well, it's to yeah, minimize pain if the person is in pain. And yeah. yeah if the person is truly in pain, right, but if you have a doctor and you have a good relationship with your doctor and he's aware of the situation, he could also do that, you know, if you're trusted so they don't worry about you doing that, but... You can't trust hospice. And if a person, like, in-stage cancer and they're in a great deal of pain and they're dying and they know that their time has come, if hospice 
you were to let them in your home and they left you with that kit and they explained the drugs to you, I would give half of what they said, you know, or be talking to someone that you trust and only administer that when the person is actually in pain so that you could, you know, help them cross over and not be in pain. But what hospice does is a one-size-fits-all, and they give everybody the same amount of drugs, the same um, drugs that they're giving them, and the dosage becomes, as Patricia said earlier, that it was every four hours, that it's every two hours. And that's for someone who's in pain, but there's a whole load of people out there that really are not in pain. That's you know, right. maybe they want Tylenol, aspirin, or ibuprofen or something like that, but they're not really in pain. They're just slipping away. Um, right. Right. And they're not, they, don't need, they don't need anxiety medication. You, they don't you know, need wait, 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 excuse me, wait, excuse me. Excuse me. As a therapist, you know there is end-of-life agitation. I believe there is a place for hospice when it's done appropriately. And morphine is used for more than just pain. It eases the work of breathing at end-of-life. It takes the edge off that agitation. If anyone has ever seen someone die with end-stage that death, agitation, you would be on board with giving patients morphine to ease them. Not everybody just goes to sleep. No, that's true, and that is one group of patients. That is true for a certain group of patients, but some people just die of old age, and not everybody goes to sleep. Yeah, and sometimes the hospitalization of people is what causes the agitation. I mean, I've seen people die a lot. And when there is family in the room and and they're doing their thing, the agitation goes way down because, you know, when we just don't let people flutter. It's, it's, like a, it's like a kneel or a baby in ICU. Their agitation is sky high because of the lights and the strangeness and all mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Once they go home, they calm down. It's that's that's I, that group of patients. I just wanted to some kind of protocol where, yeah. you know, or everybody has to go well, to hospice. And that's the thing. Right, no, and not everybody should go to hospice. I mean, that is an individual thing. And to have, you know, a one, like Marcia said, one size fits all doesn't work. It's very individualized. But I would hate for it to be taken away to where those patients that genuinely need it, it's not being given to them because of the wrongdoings of others. So, there, you know, we need to find this middle ground of helping those that want it, and if you don't want it, then that's your choice. And it should always go back to the patient's choice, not what I want for someone else, but what I they want for themselves. I think that's the conversation right there is patient choice, and that's very true. Yeah. And that's where guardianship has taken choice so much away from the people and hospice and the way it's morphed in it, it's just taken so much choice away from people. Um, okay, that whole that whole guardianship, you need to listen to Marty's shows because Marty is an expert on guardianship. That is a whole racket into itself. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> 
So, um, Holly, how long have you been a respiratory therapist? 35 years. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You sound like you – now, do you do hospice or – I have done hospice. I've done okay. all of it one time or another. But hospice, what it used to be and what hospice is now, is a whole different thing. Okay, my my last stint for the last eight years was probably pediatrics and Neil, but but what they did then and what's going on now is two different things. Um, right. Brain deficit called Vina and what it is now is two different things. The monetization and what they're doing in hospitals now is way different than back then. They've more right. it's totally different. Yeah, it's it's totally different, and the corporate takeover, which has been there for quite a while, but now it's you know insurances own the hospital literally on paper, paper, mm-hmm. you know, and the hospitals mm-hmm. basically hiring guardians inside their own hospital to guardianship patients, and then follow them after the patient's discharge is just crazy. There's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff going on. Right. Yeah, Michelle and I've talked about that too. Yeah, it's just scary. It's very scary. Yeah, and it's caused people not to take their kids into the hospitals right now too because anything that happens, you get CPS caught on you right now. It's just, and it scares me because people are not bringing their kids into the hospitals if someone (laughs) breaks their leg or they're not doing it, and it's scary. It scares me. They're not coming in for help when they need to come in for help yeah. because it's so fearful of, um, of the backlash, and it right. scares me. Holly, can, can I stop you there? Um, do you belong to our Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice? Um, I probably do. I don't know. I have it on my thing here. I belong okay. to, yeah, I do, I do. In fact, I, that's how I got this show tonight. Okay, okay. Um, so... Can you reach out um, to, excuse me? Private message would you, me. Oh, I was just going to ask. Yes, please. Yeah. Thank private, you. Private message would like me to connect if you would. Up with you. Yeah, I think, I think I that's a good idea. Book. I think I uh, downloaded it. I can't remember, to be honest. Okay, so I, we, have four minute, we, we have four minutes left, and so I, I okay. hate to cut you off, but I would like to talk to you. So if you will private message me, and then I'll give. Give that to Michelle also. So, but thank you, thank you very much for calling in. Appreciate it. Um, so, Michelle, you have three minutes. What you want to say in three minutes? I would like to go back to um, what our other therapist mentioned about the perception of physicians and how things have changed. I don't think people realize today that physicians are no longer their own private business or private practice. You know, 20, 30 years ago, a physician opened up, hung their little shingle outside, and they had their own staff doing their own uh, billing and stuff like that. Physicians now work for the insurance companies. So physicians are employees of the insurance companies, just like the hospitals are employees of the insurance companies. So when you talk about death panels, it goes back to, you know, bean counters at at an insurance company saying you can have this treatment for this, this, and this, Um, and it goes all the way down to the doctor. And this medication. And the doctor is only going to give you, 
Right. Right. Now, Dr. And even though that medication has, and we can do a whole show on this, even though that medication has serious side effects, they don't care. This is what you were supposed to be giving your patients, and, you know, Marty can tell you horror stories about that. So, um, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, I want to let people know that I am working on a slideshow for those who have been murdered by hospice or the hospitals. And if you are on the Murdered by Hospice page, you can put your picture there, your loved one's picture and their dates. And so we just want to do a memorial for those with, you know, some nice background music. And that's we're working on that. So that is on the group. Thank you so much again, Michelle, for coming out and giving us some very good information um, to warn people about the dangers of trusting hospice without verifying. And it goes back to that knowledge is power and follow the money. This is all about money. And the more people they get rid of, the less money it costs them, and that's the name of the game. That's their goal. Yep. So you have to arm yourself with knowledge before you accept anything. That sounds too good. Sounds too good to be true. Well, but it's protection. And if you're trying to protect yourself and your loved one, you have to have the information and you cannot just trust what they tell you because they don't have your best interest at heart. They have no reason to. They don't know you. You're not their friend. You're not their family. And as you've heard tonight, some family members um, also want to get rid of them because there's money in it or they don't want to take care of that person anymore. We are supposed to take care of our loved ones. It's, it's what we should do. And we should protect people and we should let other people know the dangers and not remain quiet about it. You know, I'd have loved somebody to have taught me what I know now so I could have saved my mom. <clears throat> so, all right, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. Marty, thank you. And to our people that called in, April, Patricia, and Holly, thank you so much for calling in and participating with us. We like it. All right, everybody thank have a good evening. Thank you. Thank good you. night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night, Marty. Good night, John Boy. <laughs>